This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveler. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me is my co-host, Meredith Carey. Hello. And today we're super excited to be joined by, I don't know, we could call her a super traveler, a super explorer. She like puts both of us to shame, really. I think like basically everyone. Um, <laughs> Kate Harris is a writer and explorer with, as she likes to describe it, a knack for getting lost. She's written for publications including The Wars and Canadian Geographic and has been published in numerous essay collections including the heralded Best American Travel Writing. Her recent memoir, Lands of Lost Borders, takes us on a 10-month odyssey along the Silk Road by bicycle. Yes, bicycle. (laughs) Starting in Istanbul, she passed through countries like Georgia, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, China, Tibet and Nepal. And in all, she biked for 10,000 kilometers across 10 countries. So the original question that I have is just a a bike. You decided (laughs) to bike? Well, I was inspired by uh, sort of indirectly or inversely inspired by Marco Polo. That was sort of my my root inspiration. I was enchanted by this children's book about him that my mother had given me, would have been hers when she was a child. And of course, he traveled by camel caravan, but that didn't seem too practical in this day and age. And so bicycles are equally bumpy on the, the roads that I traveled anyway, but they're less likely to, to spit at you. And how did you, you know, once you decided, all right, like, this is my mode of transport, how did you decide, all right, it's going to be the Silk Road? Because there was any manner of incredible routes you could have done around the world. You could have also just like biked across Europe. Yeah, I mean, the Silk Road really just appealed to me as as a place that had this deep, natural but also cultural history i mean it's the world's oldest superhighway for trade and the fact that you still have these vast wildernesses in between the trading hubs it's kind of a, a testament to the fact that yeah wildness persists despite um civilization i guess uh so i was, I was just fascinated by that part of the world the sort of mix of human and natural history that that you find along it and you know, you have to pick a road at some point, you know, freedom isn't limitless options. It's sort of choosing one option and then pursuing it to its fullest expression. And so it was kind of a, a no brainer. Um, yeah. So of course it interested me. I wanted to travel by bicycle, which I had no previous experience with, but I, I just figured it would be, I mean, bicycles are this beautifully democratic form of travel. Like most of us know how to ride a bike. You can travel enormous distances 
by very simple and very cheap means, which as a recent university grad with no money, that was all very appealing. Yeah, and so the Silk Road just just gave some order to like the momentum I had in wanting to get out and explore the world. And so you didn't do it alone, you had a travel partner. Yes. How did that how did you persuade someone to come with you? Well, so I went with my best childhood friend, uh, Melissa or Mel, and she'd always been propelling me places that I never would have dared go alone. Like since we were in elementary school together, you know, whether playground games or ridiculous dance skits in front of the entire school, like things I would never do on my own. I would do them because Mel was like, let's do this. And so I actually, I pitched the idea to her and Mel also has this beautiful quality of um, just being game for anything. And she has the follow through to her enthusiasm as well. Cause you say to a lot of people, Oh, let's go have this grand adventure and enthusiasm is there, but not the ability to actually make it happen. And Mel bought a bike before I did. So that made me realize like, okay, this is really happening. Yeah. She's just incredibly game for adventure and setting off for the unknown. And that's been this quality to our friendship from the very beginning, but it it certainly found its most extreme expression on the Silk Road. Well, and I'm so curious because I have a very adventurous childhood best friend, but I think if we were together for 10 months straight doing strenuous activity, we probably would have killed each other or we would not be (laughs) friends anymore. So like, how did your friendship change or what was it about it that really like pushed you guys through to the end? Yeah, well, we'd done a couple other longer trips together before this this mega trip. Um, so initially we biked across the US in two months and then we biked for four months just on a bridge section of the Silk Road in China. And so 10 months didn't feel that different in some ways, although it was you know, just a drastically longer period of time, especially in countries where usually the only person you can rely on to communicate effectively is, is this one other English speaker who happens to be crammed in the tent with you most of the time. Mm-hmm. We have an incredible ability, I think, to be alone together, like to feel a sort of rejuvenating rejuvenating solitude even in each other's presence. Like we, you know, we don't feel obliged to make conversation or entertain each other or amuse each other. Um, we can just kind of think more like siblings, just like sit quietly in a room together and, and be in our own thoughts. But, you know, all that said, we were pretty ready for other company by the end of the trip. <laughs> Um, but we're still really dear friends. I, I see her, see her often. And, uh, you know, when you've lived through something so intense together and you can summon entire days or weeks with like a word that just evokes all these memories that only you understand fully, that's just, it's a wonderful thing to have. On Kate's website, there is this great little 10 minute video that gives you this snapshot into this insane journey that they went on. And it looks like you started, well, you started in Istanbul because you took the ferry across to the Asian side, which is, I guess, where the route begins. And it quickly became winter. So what type of, yeah. year, what type of year did you start and how long were you in the cold for? Oh, too long by my <laughs> reckoning. I mean, I love the cold, but it's the damp cold that really does me in, which is what we found on the Black Sea coast of Turkey. So yeah, we left in... January from Istanbul and we figured that either start on the Europe end of the Silk Road or start on the Asian end and the Asian end is is at a much higher altitude and so we figured you know if we've got a year to do this we better start in winter at a lower altitude so we thought Black Sea 
biking at sea level would be pretty manageable. Like sure it would be cold and maybe rainy, but it, we were not prepared for like day in day out week after week of freezing rain, essentially. Uh, so we were soaked right through. It was the most miserable stretch of the trip. So it's a really good thing. It came right at the beginning because our enthusiasm levels were about as high as they were going to get. Um, and it's pretty wearing. Mel happens to do better. I do better in like deep, deep cold. I'm not intimidated by, you know, minus 30 degrees Celsius for weeks on end. Whereas that is pretty freaky to Mel and she does better in, I don't know. She managed Turkey like a, a hero and I was just a big baby. <laughs> Didn't want to get out of the tent in the morning and it was a rough start to the trip, but certainly fortunate that it was the beginning. Do you feel like growing up in Canada prepared you at all for how cold it was going to be? <laughs> <laughs> it did to an extent, but there's just something about being out in it all day with very little opportunity for retreat and then unfurling your soaking wet tent at night and hopefully your sleeping bags are the one dry thing, but everything's just kind of damp and saturated and there's just no way to warm up when you're wet. I think that's why I like, like dry cold. You can always give it enough um, dry gear, get yourself warm again. So yeah, even a Canadian childhood didn't, didn't fully <laughs> prepare me for, for Turkey in the winter. Were you ever tempted to just like, be like, let's get on a train for a bit and no one will know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Yes, certainly. I mean, the short answer is absolutely. There are many days and I was just like, oh, you know, in a trip like this, you do it in part for those days that are just a grind because they make the the glorious moments all the more intense and, and beautiful. But when you're in the thick of it, it's hard to remember that, you know, to and see that larger picture. So, yeah, there were you know, many times when I just wanted to give up, mostly mornings, like I just wouldn't be like, can't we just wait out the rain and just sit, lie in our tent where we're warm for once and just read the day away and we'll set off tomorrow. Um, when of course it would be just as rainy and miserable. But in a, in a sense, because we'd made the, the journey quite public, like we, we needed to fundraise for the trip to help pay for it. And so we were sharing photos on, on, Facebook whenever we got to an internet connection and the more miserable we looked in the photos and the more like grisly the conditions the more people were like cheering us on <laughs> so it, that kind of helps just knowing that we weren't we were alone out there but there were a lot of people rooting for us namely our friends and family um and we we didn't want to let them down I guess I have a wild card question just because we've recently found like a f real obsession with talking about books on this podcast but I'm curious oh my god I think you literally read my mind I was going to ask the same question what did you like did you bring paper books with you because you can't you couldn't have brought like that much stuff because you were having to pedal it all along but what did you read while you were on this incredible adventure oh we both read voraciously so we had kindles which we loaded with hundreds of, of books and I ended up gravitating mostly towards poetry initially just because I, I'd be so tired at the end of the day that it, sort of that lyrical intensity but especially brevity was all I could really take in and so I read a lot of I don't know Rumi because I was in Turkey where he ultimately settled and Robert Bly and the one physical book I brought with me was also a book of poetry by this Canadian poet Don Demansky and it it's a collection called All Our Wonder Unavenged, and it was just the perfect companion for a journey like this in that it spans continents and centuries and 
really sort of looks at deep time and, and human lives just kind of flitting in and out of the world. Yeah, it was just a, a pretty magical thing to be reading as we'd get mired down in the, the details of daily life on the Silk Road. And then at the end of the day, just sort of be reminded of like, we're on this planet floating in a universe that we barely understand. And you know, it's pretty marvelous to be alive, despite how I was feeling earlier today. <laughs> um, yeah, we read novels. The beauty of a bike trip too is, is you have so much time actually, because you can only turn the the wheels for so many hours of a day. And, and we tended to, we wouldn't have distance objectives. We'd have our objectives. So we had these little cycling computers. And once we'd essentially been spinning the pedals for five hours or so, which would usually take a bunch of the day because of brakes and stopping. And we would just pitch the tent and settle in and warm up and, and read. So we had hours upon hours of just time to read and it was such a it felt like childhood in a sense you know you can just really lose yourself in books and not be wondering oh I should check my email or oh, I should do the dishes it was luxurious in that sense and so you grew up you know you mentioned this book about Marco Polo but you grew up sort of fascinated by explorers right and you read a yeah. lot about them yeah explorers they just seemed to it seemed like they got to make a career of curiosity like they got to just set off for the sake of setting off and wanting to know what's around the next bend. And again, maybe that's a childish dream or longing because that, that essentially is what it is to sort of be a child and grow up. You know, everything's new and fresh and astonishing. Um, and maybe I, I didn't want to surrender that in a sense. And explorers, it seemed, got to live that out their entire lives. And so I was, my heroes, yeah, were people like Marco Polo and Shackleton and Nansen Alexandra David Neal is this remarkable woman who disguised herself as a Buddhist pilgrim to sneak into Tibet. Yeah, I just thought they lived lives that were equal to the wildness of being alive at all. And that's what I wanted. And that's when I looked around the small town I, I lived in in Ontario, it didn't seem to me that people were living, living those kinds of lives. Like they're you know, so focused on the, what seemed to me at the time smaller things, like just getting by and putting money in the bank. And I certainly have more sympathy for those aspects of life now that I'm... I was going to say that's a very, like, I mean, I've definitely grown up thinking the same thing. And then you, like, get into adulthood and you're like, oh, I understand now. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, taxes, uh, you know, you can't shrug this stuff off. It's part of life <laughs> to have food in the fridge and, yeah. And so were there moments where, on this trip especially, kind of once you really got into the swing of things as you like pass through these different countries and these towns and villages or just complete wilderness where you felt like, wow, like I'm an explorer. I feel like an explorer. Well, it's interesting because by the time the trip actually came about, I'd sort of gone through this, you know, I, I hero worshipped explorers when I was a kid. And then as I got older, I realized that so many of them were motivated by, you know, a quest for fame and fortune at best and you know at worst like conquest um and it, it seemed very far from the, the sort of curiosity and wonder propelled journeys that i had imagined them going on and so i, I related to them less and less and, and longed to be them less and less and in a sense set off on the silk road to kind of avenge my idealistic vision of what exploration can be which is much more about you know connection and conquest yeah so that really evolved evolved over time so i kind of People, I don't think I've ever claimed for myself that I'm 
an explorer. I, I end up on these lists of like Canada's top 10 explorers and they're like, thank you. But it's, it just feels like a very dated term. And there's a lot of baggage with it that I, I'm very aware of and don't want to represent that side of the history of exploration. Um, maybe more the wonderstruck side is what I'm after. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned Alexandra earlier because so many of these explorers who, like you said, maybe like leaned on the conquest, pillage, take over a section of land and claim it as their own are are historically men. Were there any other people other than Alexandra that you really gravitated towards because they felt like they were doing something different? Yeah, I mean, and it's an interesting pattern. I've thought a little bit about this recently because of something someone asked me in an interview. You know, why was that? Why were the women out there for um, purportedly what looked like more noble reasons? Um, and I think in part, you know, I'd like to give them women generally just credit for being more noble. But I think also they were denied the opportunities that that male explorers had for fame and for glory. Another explorer I write about in the book that sort of inspired me, but in this is kind of roundabout way. Um, her name is Fanny Bullock Workman, the most amazing name ever. <laughs> um, so she she basically tried to be like a guy. She tried to go into this this unknown region, this glacier on what is now the border of India and Pakistan. And she tried to map it and she tried to name peaks and she named a whole bunch of peaks after she was American, a wealthy American naturalist in the early 1900s. But she named all these peaks after like British monarchs, because that's what explorers had done in the past. Cause sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she, you know, I'm she sorry. I'm just sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she she wasn't allowed to be that. She was laughed out of geographical societies and and sort of what lingers of her accomplishments are more feminist in their aims and intentions, I guess. You know, what we know of Fanny Bullock Workman as sort of a popular perspective on what she achieved is she unfurled this poster that said votes for women on the top of what was then the tallest peak of female had ever climbed. And that's her big contribution to exploration. But it's not because she didn't try to do the other stuff. So she's sort of this like admirable and yet questionably admirable uh, figure. So she was human, I guess. <laughs> Speaking of like being human and having those low points, what would you say were the, you know, like pinpoint those really tough, oh my gosh, like what the heck are we doing moments? Were there places that were just really hard? Um. I would point to those stretches. And again, Mel would probably have very different answers. We should totally be doing these podcasts together. <laughs> the full story. Um, this is probably true for both of us. Running into like visa hassles, it sounds super mundane, but having the momentum of the trip continually thwarted by these bureaucratic hoops we had to jump through. Um, and it was never quite clear if we'd, we'd ever get permission to, to continue down the next leg of the trip. And meanwhile, we were just burning money we didn't have in expensive capital cities, like in taxi fares to the to the embassy and waiting on visas that sometimes never arrived. So it just felt like the trip had stalled out. And we hadn't experienced that on any of our previous bike rides because they were just within one country. Although in retrospect, those pauses were, were vital for for the writing side of, of the trip. You know, boredom is a, is a healthy and helpful thing when you're a writer. 
it, it gives you access to ideas you that wouldn't occur to you if you're you know actively you trying to dredge them out so these long dull periods of just sitting in embassies i'd just be like doodling in my journal and thinking about something we'd lived through a few weeks in the, the past and would suddenly get some new clarity into how i saw it um so it was a creatively generative time even as it was physically frustrating stop um i had biking across tibet I still have very mixed feelings about that whole stunt and it really was a, a stunt. I mean, it was totally illegal. It was not, you know, don't try this at home kids or abroad in order to travel across Tibet as an independent traveler. Well, essentially independent travel in Tibet is, is not possible. You have to have special permits, which cost a lot of money and that money goes to the Chinese government or you have to have a, a guide and the guide essentially can only take you to very sanctioned places. And there are very, carefully monitored by the government as well. And so we didn't want to pay money that would sort of reinforce this power asymmetry between the Chinese government and, and Tibetans who are kind of um, trapped in the, what used to be their country. But this meant a serious compromise in, in how we access Tibet, namely that we disguised ourselves like Chinese cyclists, which sounds ludicrous and absurd, and but it, it truly worked. There's so many young Chinese people who like to bike to Lhasa, to the Patala Palace in Lhasa, and they start out in uh, Golmud in Qinghai province. So this highway, this one of the eastern highways leading into Tibet is just full of cyclists day after day, and they all, you know, they're fully dressed because it's cold even in the summer on the Tibetan plateau, and they wear face masks up around their sunglasses and under their helmets to protect against dust and sun. And so we could look exactly like them and get through checkpoints because all the checkpoint guards just assumed we were Chinese, which was an impression we um, that was aided by the fact that we flew huge Chinese flags on our bikes. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, pretty on but, the nose. <laughs> yeah. But this meant that Tibetans didn't want to talk to us because we looked Chinese at first glance. And it also meant, I mean, we were leery of talking to Tibetans as well because we didn't want to implicate them in this illegal foray into their, their country. It would be highly suspicious if they were caught talking to these clearly duplicitous foreigners like sneaking into their their territory so we kind of felt like ghosts moving across this landscape like in tibet but not of it and you know any form of exploration you're limited by your chosen mode of exploration like you're limited in what you'll see and what you'll learn and you know that mode of exploration could be as as basic as the questions you're asking of a place it doesn't have to be you know the disguise you wear to access it but that really hit home for me as we biked across tibet and felt like we were in one way bearing witness to what we wouldn't otherwise get to see or report back on. But at the same time, it was a very compromised journey across Tibet. You mentioned earlier that there were places that you didn't end up being able to get the visa for. I'm just curious what those places were and how you guys adjusted your path now not being able to go the way that you had planned to go all along. Yeah, um, just a lot of improvisation. So basically, we... Um, got to Baku in Azerbaijan, the capital city of Azerbaijan. That was the one place we could apply for an Uzbek visa, which Uzbekistan was our hoped for next stop after a short little stint in Kazakhstan across the Caspian Sea. So we'd have to cross Caspian Sea. It's hard to explain all this without a map. It sounds very, you know, just throwing out consonants. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so we were denied that Uzbek visa because I naively 
confess that I was uh, a writer and I wasn't even a writer really. I was an aspiring writer with no publications basically to my credit at the time, which I think is ultimately why they granted it. But it took about a month of us going all the way across Kazakhstan to another embassy by train and then returning all the way back to the Caspian Sea and then continuing along our original route. So we weren't actually denied the opportunity to do what we planned. It just took way more um, time and and money and and travel than we expected. But then it was like a, a game of chess because the only Chinese embassy in all of Central Asia granting tourist visas was in the capital of Uzbekistan. So if we couldn't go to Uzbekistan, we suddenly couldn't go to China as well, which then our route wouldn't be, wouldn't be possible. So we were, yeah, constantly faced with these potential ends to the journey that we didn't, we didn't plan. You know, I feel like I never really thought about much about borders until I had difficulty crossing one. How is that? Oh, it was, well, I just got detained for a very long time in Israel for reasons that remain unbeknownst to me. (laughs) Um, And I'd very much like walked up to immigration with my British passport with the arrogance of a British person thinking like, well, I've never had to be worried about this. I never will. And then, of course, I was, they took my passport away and I was detained for a very long time. Um, But this is all, all to say that it really, I think, like changed my perception of the way we move around the world or cannot move around the world and I'm wondering if you know you experience so much more of that not necessarily getting detained but the bureaucracy and the restraints um, that borders present has it kind of changed your your world view yeah I mean I certainly have enormous sympathy and also a kind of rage on behalf of those who have passports that don't have the privileges that, you know, British, Canadian, American passport automatically gives us. And border crossings terrify me. I mean, they have such power in that moment of you being in no human's land. And yeah, usually we, we can just kind of muscle our way through eventually. But the fact that I was complaining about not being able to move freely through Central Asia when the people who live there are, are far more trapped um, by economic circumstances and by passports that don't mean much in other parts of the world. Yeah, it, it really cultivated a, a grudge against borders in myself and, and I think Mel too, not because of us being frustrated by them, although there was that, more seeing how they you know, they exist for some people and they don't exist at all for others. And that's purely by fluke of where you happen to be born, kind of life you happen to be born into. And that feels deeply unjust. And I have no idea how to change that, but (laughs) writing a book railing against them maybe is a start. (laughs) It must have felt good. And so um, going back to something you said earlier that, you know, the tough moments and the challenging moments and the rain and the cold made those glorious moments feel that much brighter. And I was wondering what some of those glorious moments were. Yeah, I, I think my very favorite stretch of the trip was biking across Uzbekistan when we finally, you know, part of it was we finally got to go to Uzbekistan after all this uh, hassle. And it was so hot in the, the western part of the country at night. We were there and it was only April, but it was just blazing hot and windy. And it's just a sort of flat desert plateau that leads over to the where the Aral Sea used to be. 
It's called the Oostier Plateau. And so we took to biking at night because it was just too hot during the day to, to really suffer out much. Part of me longing to be an explorer as a kid was very much tied up in space exploration because I thought that was sort of the last, you know, the final frontier for, for people with that kind of spirit in this day and age. And biking across Uzbekistan at night with like the stars coming right down to earth and you'd never seen such a such an intense otherworldly sky. It, it felt like space travel only better because I could breathe, I could laugh out loud and feel the wind on my face. I wouldn't have to wear a spacesuit. Um, yeah, it was just totally enchanting. And so in a weird way, I, I came to know huge stretches of that country more by its constellations than any earthly landmarks because there are big parts of the Silk Road that I biked, but I haven't actually seen Tibet too because we had to do a bunch of sneaking around at night. How long were you in Tibet for? Uh, it was about a month. Oh God, that's total. a long time. Yeah. Yeah, we had to pack everything, all the food we needed for a month because we didn't want to go into any towns. There were towns and stores, but we didn't want to get caught because as soon as we talked, it would be clear we weren't Chinese. Uh, so yeah, we, we just basically starved our way across the plateau for a month. Oh <laughs> were there any moments when you were like, oh God, someone's onto us or I'm feeling uneasy? Yeah, we gradually relaxed. It seemed we were certainly that way at the beginning, like super paranoid. We never wanted any skin showing on our face between our sunglasses and our face mask. You know, people would shout out like, hello, or, or not hello, ni hao, to us. We'd sort of just not answer and just keep biking, like really paranoid that we were going to give ourselves away at any moment. And eventually we kind of relaxed a bit. I think we felt protected by the fact that even if we were – People think you have permission to be there if you're there because otherwise you wouldn't be there because it's impossible to get there. So we were able to relax a little bit, uh, but we still hid our tent from the road every night and never talked to people. There was one military checkpoint we had to sneak around at night that was terrifying, um, which I describe in the book. And the military checkpoints versus the police checkpoints, they make everyone stop. And so that was our, our only option. We're going around, but it's probably the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, I'm glad we did it only because it worked out. Once you guys got through Tibet and got into China and were finishing up, you know, what was that feeling? There's a, there's, I'm sure we can link to this video in the show notes. So if you're looking for it, that's where you can find it. But, um, when you guys got to the end, there's this really precious clip of you guys like hugging the sign of the last city that you were in. Um, you know, what was you know, talk about rewarding, like what was that feeling of being like, we're done? Um, a combination of, I would like to say it was just sort of this uncomplicated joy at, at the achievement of the ride, like that we'd actually gotten to where we set out to go. It was more a feeling of um, surreality and exhaustion and relief more than anything that we had, that we could stop. <laughs> we were we were pretty worn down at that point, and um, I certainly found it tiring. Sort of month after month, feeling like I was having a very superficial experience in whatever country we were propelling ourselves through on the bike. Bike travels is probably one of the more intimate ways of, of getting to know a country, other than living there long term. But even so, you you know you meet people one night and you never see them again, and you pass through a mountain range and you'll, you'll never see it again. You're, you're sort of constantly forcing this change 
on your life, which is thrilling and exciting, but it also gets pretty tiring after a while, like everything new all the time. I was longing for, I don't know, I was dreaming, fantasizing about like a little cabin in the woods where I, I could stay put and just like watch the world change around me instead of me forcing the change on the world. Mel was super eager to get back to her boyfriend who <laughs> he visited a couple times along the way. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think where all this is going is other than the two of us, we were part of no community on this trip. You know, we were just like loose atoms careening down the Silk Road and um, you get glimpses, you know, in small villages or big cities everywhere, you know, people's lives playing out with deep connections to place and other people. And we had none of that. We were you know, just isolated. I guess. And I, I really, I craved family and friends and having a garden and <laughs> like, yeah, being still for a while. You know, you were saying you have these sort of flashes of villages or people or towns that you pass through and you're kind of there for a night um, and then you never see it again. I was wondering, firstly, I mean, this is something I definitely experience when I'm traveling is I get very worried about forgetting things and forgetting that like these tiny tiny little moments that seem quite inconsequential but are like in fact incredibly special and so had you already set out to write about this trip before you embarked on it or was writing while you were on it a means of like not forgetting um a bit of both I mean I certainly I dreamed of writing a book out of the trip I didn't know if it would you know, lend itself to a book, but I certainly hope so. I essentially burned every bridge to like a reasonable career when I set off on the bike trip. You know, I was supposed to be a scientist and I was doing this PhD and um, I knew I wanted to, I wanted to travel and I wanted to write and I wanted to come at exploring scientific ideas and the world through writing because that always felt more fulfilling, I guess, than, than, fiddling with lab experiments. And that was the big dream is leave this behind and whatever it takes, be, become a writer. Um, I'd always been a hugely voracious reader and writing was just what I did for, for fun when I, you know, wasn't crunching through problem sets or designing experiments. And I went into science in part to be an explorer in part to eventually, I hope to be an astronaut. But in the meanwhile, um, get out to some of the, the wildest places on earth and do field work. And I, as I got further down that path, it seems the ratio between the amount of time you actually spend doing field work to the amount of time you spend back in a lab or, you know, writing grant applications, it was too skewed for my personality. I have fierce admiration for scientists and I love scientific ideas. And I, I think it's, a, it's a beautiful career path for those that, that love it, but it, I was just not suited to it. And so writing, emerged more and more as, as like the true path, I guess, or, or just something I, I love doing that didn't, it didn't feel always like work. You know, there's a sense of like deep play, even in, even in, if it were, you know, writing to a deadline, like you get to play around with, with words and sentences. And, and it's amazing how, how words and sentences you put on the page can surprise you into totally new ways of seeing things. So that, that felt like exploration more than what I was fiddling with in the lab. So yeah, I set off on the, the bike trip. Uh, Mel knew I was planning to write about it, so she was on her best behavior the entire time. 
<laughs> and uh, took detailed notes. And we also filmed the entire thing, which is where that 10 minute video came from. We had grand ambitions of like a documentary coming out of it and um, just never happened. But that was invaluable material to have because those days that I was too tired to, to really capture um, a moment on the page, like if we were having dinner with a family or often there was either a photo or a video clip I could go back to and, you know, pluck out the color of carpets and you know, things that I, I didn't think were meaningful in the moment. I have a question now that you've written the book and you've done all these bike journeys there was a tidbit in an outside magazine story that said that you were getting your pilot's license. Yeah. So I was like what? Yeah. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah. Learning to fly has always been a dream of mine. I mean, space, the stars getting a new perspective on our, our planet has long been sort of a, the motif running through all my, my explorations and writing as well. Yeah, and, and weirdly, bicycles are, are intimately tied up in the history of flight. So it just seemed like the next step. So <laughs> the Wright brothers used bicycle parts on their original flyer. And in some ways, it's a tough call to say, you know, what is the most elegant, efficient machine that, that people have ever come up with? And a bicycle and a simple like glider are probably the two in terms of how far you can go and how much effort. Yeah, so I, I, I'd always wanted to learn how to fly. I always wanted to get my pilot's license at some point. And um, it was essentially, I never had any any money to be able to do it. And um, the book sold, I mean, not for a large amount, but just enough to like burn through a pilot's license in the sky um, <laughs> because it sold in, in other territories. It was completely unexpected. It felt like free money because it you've done the work and then it's just selling again. And so my partner graciously agreed that I, I could squander this money instead of paying down our mortgage on the cabin. And I'm sure I'll, I'm sure I'll write about it. And I'm not sure in what way yet, but it's just been such a mind-altering, on a very like neural level um, experience to to sort of rewire your brain for movement in this totally different medium. You suddenly have six degrees of freedom, and yet you're very constrained at the same time by the limitations of what the plane can do and your abilities. It's just, it's totally enchanting to see, see the world from above. And I, you know, it feels like a bit of a dead end. You know, I'm not going to become a, a career pilot or anything, but it was just something I wanted to do before I died. Here's the opportunity. Like, why not? Why not let the one dream of the book and the trip propel the next? Well, that feels like oh. just such a beautiful way to end the podcast. <laughs> Just enchanted. <laughs> Might um, get a pilot license. <laughs> or a bike. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I doesn't even know how to drive. No, I mean, all I can do is ride a bicycle. So <laughs> I think that's going to be my mode of transport. I would love if you got your pilot's license before a driver's license. I think it would be, I think it would be pretty great. I think that might be my aim. Um, well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find the book and follow your current adventures on the internet? Um, the book, it should be available anywhere books are sold, as far as I know, or at least could be ordered in if it's not already there. Um, so all the usual suspects online and in real life. People can connect with me through my website, which is kateharris.ca. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I love hearing from people. And what's your handle? 
Oh, it's uh, so it's a bit complicated, but it's Kate on Mars on Twitter and Facebook, and then someone stole that on Instagram, and so I have Kate off Mars on Instagram. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I am at Oh Hey There Mayor. I am at Lale Hannah on Instagram. You can read stories of other grand explorers, female explorers that you actually want to read about that did very nice, lovely things um, on cntraveler.com and check out other women who travel content, Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook, at cntraveler on Twitter and Instagram. And we have one last announcement, which is that on November 15th, which is days after this episode goes up. Uh, we are having a meetup in San Francisco. Megan Spurl, who has come on this podcast a couple times, and our West Coast editor, Becca Meisner, will be meeting at an undisclosed location around San Francisco. So make sure to join the Facebook group, uh, Women Who Travel, to be able to RSVP to the event. It's going to be a lot of fun. We love having everybody at meetups and are going to have a bunch in the coming months. So definitely stay tuned. And the group here is first, so make sure you join it to be able to get all that info. Thanks so much. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave four-year vacation in the plane <coughs> and come home under the plane... You've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.